Elvis sent his Cadillac, his gold-plated Cadillac, out on tour so he didn't have to go. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, I think if, if what interests you about writing is that, being the Cadillac, um, then obviously you're going to find someone ends up driving you. It'll be your publisher, your editor. Uh, you won't be in control of that process. everyone and welcome to the pleasure of the text podcast we're your hosts shannon and gareth good morning shannon my good writing buddy yes uh so you're giving a preview it's a preview it's it? not much of a preview i think i was yeah give it a hint yeah foreshadowing i should know that word given i'm apparently a writer but anyway at uh, the pleasure of the text we believe that reading and writing are lonely pursuit hence the writing buddies. And today we are going to be talking about literary collaborators, writing buddies. Now you mentioned you wanted to call it literary co collaborators for a particular reason, Gareth. Yes. Yes, I do. Because writing buddies has a somewhat optimistic sheen to it, but there is another side to the story, which is the whole literary collaborator. And for those who are listening on our listening platforms i am doing air quotes they actually look a little bit like bunnies anyways literary collaborators and just to get off to a, like a really good start on what i mean by that i just want to read you the first paragraph of an article um, by wb goodham um, and the article is entitled do too many authors spoil the book it's on the guardian it's about 11 years old but that's okay so here's the, here's the uh, beginning of this article. When, on the 9th of August, 1967, Kenneth Halliwell beat Joe Orton to death in their North London bedsit and then took his own life, it was perhaps the most extreme example of what can happen when literary collaboration goes awry. So what I got from that is if we organise an Airbnb together, I'm not going. Yes, that's what I would take away from that as well. Definitely. Yeah. Very grisly scene that I, I, uh, I believe it was not, n not a gentle passing for Joe Orton. Um, yeah. obviously that is the dark side of co-writing and literary collaboration. And I was very much reminded of the French resistance resistance, you know, that idea of collaborators. Uh, so, so that's why I feel that should be our AKA this yeah i mean i don't want to poke fun at someone's death because it is tragic did he get beaten to death with a book actually i think it was a hammer so um okay oh, <laughs> well, no um, okay. no no it wasn't a book um but yeah so so basically goodham um talks about all these different uh writing collaborators. And certainly I, I stumbled on this article this morning because I started thinking of all the collaborators I could think of. I want to do air quotes the whole time. Uh, you know, so an obvious one would be, uh, Truman Capote and Harper Lee, mm. um, and, uh, Joseph Conrad and Ford Maddox Ford. I know that Ford Maddox Ford at least wrote a chapter of Nostromo and people can't tell which chapter it is. And this fellow, uh, Goodham, uh, brings up a really interesting, 
um, point that I, I was unaware of, which is that uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle paid his friend Fletcher Robinson £550 oh, wow. uh, for his help in writing The Hound of the Baskervilles, which is very much the central text of um, the whole canon of Sherlock Holmes. Now that £550 back in those days was a bucket load of money. It really was. Um, yeah, a small fortune. Which suggests that obviously Conan Doyle felt that uh, Robinson made a significant contribution. Um, but his name's not on the, uh, is, is not credited to the story. Yeah. So yeah, that's what this article talks about. What do you, what do you think of all that? Did you have a chance to read it? No, I didn't. But um, the Doyle example kind of reminds me of, I mean, because he, the person he paid isn't acknowledged anywhere on the book. It brings in ghostwriters of celebrities. Yeah. Well, which I guess, in a way I... is a literary collaboration because you have to at least get to know the person a bit to attempt to write like they would. I am something of a published ghostwriter. That's why I'm so pale. Mm -hmm. um, and Fletcher Robinson, who I think, now what, what was it? Vanity Fair? That doesn't sound right. Anyway, he was an editor um, of a leading London periodical. Um, God knows which one. He died at quite a young age. And there is a little bit of a sense, certainly in this article, that nothing good can come from literary collaboration. Um, another example is Raymond uh, Carver and what is it? His editor, Gordon Lish. Yeah. Uh, have we talked about Raymond Carver before? I feel like we have. No, we haven't. Do you want to talk about that relationship? Well, essentially Carver you know, is, is known for his sparse writing style. Um, everything chucked out, but the kitchen sink. It's about the only thing left. And uh, Lish was his editor, and what has since become clear is that Lish was very much the author of that particular style of writing from Carver. He would heavily edit Carver's work. Um, I would say beyond what you would call legitimate editing. Yeah, I remember you saying he even changed the names of some of uh, Raymond's characters just because. Yeah, I mean, it's completely arbitrary. There's no reason to do mm. things like that. No, he, um, and, and apparently Carver uh, felt a, a combination of gratitude because obviously Lish helped him become quite famous. At the same time, there was also quite a bit of resentment and self-doubt because everything he wrote was radically rewritten before it got uh, published. And certainly there's a book of uh, Carver's uh, now, what is it called? Well, we'll have to find that in the show notes later. But it's, uh, it's a, like first beginnings. Yeah, it's something beginnings. like that. Beginnings, yes. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a reworking of one of his collections of short stories, the name of which I've also forgotten. Um, uh, what we talk about when we talk about love. Oh, Shannon, you are a marvel. Um, <laughs> exactly. And so it's fascinating to compare the two. Um, and to see what Lish changed. Mm, it was. I, I think he, yeah, went way beyond what is acceptable for an author, uh, for an editor to do. Certainly when I was editing 
I would never have chosen to make the number of changes uh, that he chose to make. Yeah. And why why not? Because you've just also mentioned you're kind of like a ghost writer, a published ghost writer, but then you also wouldn't make the changes that Lich did. Um, when I, well, I mean, they're two really different things. Um, you know, editing is broken up into, uh, three stages, typically a structural edit, which is the, um, the narrative flow of it, chapters, plot, etc. Um, and that's a major edit process. Senior editors tend to do structural edits because it's a big job. And then you move down to copy edits which is making the text sparkle and shine. Uh, and then you do the proofread where somebody comes along and goes, well, you missed that spelling error. And then you've got a complete text. Lish was essentially Carver's structural editor and his copy editor. And I think his proofreader actually, but essentially he was doing a structural edit. So that would be the bar that we would judge his work by, but he was correcting things that simply didn't need correcting They they were beyond the pale of, of, of what would be an act of correction. So like names, um, and people's professions and just really weird arbitrary stuff. But he, he absolutely tore the guts out of Carver's writing really. Uh, and what, he, what they produced collaboratively was very popular and is Carver's style in, as Carver as a published entity. But yeah, no, an editor should, would never do that. I mean, there's, there's, for starters, there's a whole idea of authorship and, and simply removing a, a writer's agency over their own work. There's also the amount of work involved. It sounds like a nightmare. Whereas with ghostwriting, I've had to do ghostwriting either with writers who were really not ready to be published. Yeah. Um, and so their books would have such significant issues that the only way to fix them would be to create all new material for certain sections. And I think the, the kind of writer who gets into a publishing situation where that's an acceptable outcome is liable to be quite happy for, to have somebody else come along and actually do the writing as well. So I found that on a number of occasions as an editor, I was writing large chunks of text. Um, I think you get to have your name on something when you hit 10%. I think that's the legal thing, but I, I'd get close to 50% on certain jobs and, uh, no name in sight. Uh, oh, wow. as, um, I have also done ghost writing as a commission where it was understood what was occurring and that's fine. Um, because the focus of the material was the uh, like, like things like fairy tales, the, the content as a thing. And so then you're simply massaging it into a shape that requires a bit more than an edit. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't say either of those things were really collaborative though, actually. Yeah. Before we kind of move on to, cause I feel like we want to talk about writing buddies, but this is our random chat segment. So whatever rabbit holes we go down talking about authorship agency because I think a lot of writers that I've talked to are concerned. I've got this manuscript. I've spent X amount of years of my life on it. It goes to a publisher and the edits uh, start 
and it's, oh, this book is no longer the book that I wanted it to be. It's no longer the book that it was meant to be. I suppose I want you to talk a bit about what the authorship agency there and how a lot of uh, soon-to-be authors don't feel like they can say, no, that's not what I want to happen to my book because, I mean, they're so glad to finally get that publishing deal. Um, yeah, well, you know, it's it's two sides of a coin. And I, I think that's kind of why I brought up collaboration at all. Um, and again, we, you know, air quotes, collaborators. Typically, when you work on something for many years, um, concrete starts to set. Mm. You know, when, you, when you're first developing ideas, you're mixing up this gumbo of possibilities. And God, I'm going to mix some metaphors now. And, uh, and then, it, you know, the gumbo turns into concrete. Like, uh, I feel I should have gone with porridge, but anyway, um, and sometimes a fresh set of eyes can see things you can't see. Um, yeah. and this is the point of having an editor. So I think writers do have to be open to their first reader, if you like, besides themselves, um, kind of going in and doing some rewriting readers always rewrite, you know, when you pick up a book. That's what you're doing. So I think there's that side of it. You know, writers have to be open to that, to the feedback and to understanding that they're producing something for sale. And yeah. so the publisher by way of their editor is looking to hit certain points to try and shore up the possibility of success. So, so there is that, um, a guy like. Uh, Gordon Leish um, went way beyond that and he was actually co-writing. Um, I don't think editors should co-write books. They're coming in and addressing. So a book has its own logic, its own physics. Um, you develop uh, the, yeah, what is reason and reality in your story? And an editor should respect that when your work does something impossible, when it breaks its own physics. An editor should correct that. You may not be able to see it, but essentially they're trying to give you back a, a more polished version of what you put in. Yeah. Um, but under underpinning all of this, and this is why I thought this would be a cool, a cool way to get into it. Authors who are worried about being edited are missing the point, which is that writing is not absolutely not. I'll have a debate with anyone about this. It is not a solo undertaking. It's the point about podcast. It's we're going to keep saying this, it, but you know, if, if you're listening right now and you want to be a writer, it is not a solo undertaking. You'll save yourself a lot of heartbreak when you, when you buy into that idea. And obviously the first collaboration, the primary or the primary collaboration is with your reader. Um, you know, you'll re <coughs> rewrite your text as they read it. The text of the reader will flush through your text and all the associations and experiences they've ever had will shape everything that you're writing. And they will come up with a brand new text that you never intended. Harold Bloom calls this misreading. All reading is misreading. So it's good to get on board that straight away and go, okay, I am collaborating here and I will be working with editors and I will be working with readers and I will be working with subsequent versions of myself. Uh, and one of the joys of life is to get a month older and think, I didn't know anything a month ago. Now I've got it. And then do that again in a month's time. So that would be my position on this as a starting point. I'm, I'm going to hand over to you now. Um, 
So I've kind of said, you're not alone as a writer, no matter how hard you try to be. Now then, where does that take us, would you say? So I think that where that leads us is because we're talking about literary collaborations and we need to remove that myth that writing is done alone because you've just mentioned you're going to get on board, hopefully a writing buddy or a writing group that's going to give you feedback. Then you're engaging with your editors, the publishers and everyone and your future readers as well. So really learning how to be a team member in this team effort to get your writing from words on a page into a book, uh, you really need to learn how to deal with those uh, relationships and communicate effectively. And uh, this isn't like a team building communications exercise, but I think communication is so important, uh, especially when developing your work. And I think it has been really important for us as writing buddies. Are we literary collaborators under your definition? Um, well, okay. So that's an interesting one. I would also throw in, insp uh, inspirations too. You read books. Ah. So yeah. you're also collaborating with all your in, in, uh, influences. So that's another, so really it's not a solo activity. I would say we're writing buddies. I don't know, are we literary collaborators? I think that the concept of literary, literary collaboration occurs post-publishing and it's very much born out of this myth of the singular writer. So, you, you know, um, Conan Doyle pay, um, paid off Fletcher Robinson so that he could be the same. Would you say it's post-publishing or it's like within publishing that? I think it's a concept that people buy into and they buy in, readers buy into it. Okay. You know, the idea of the singular genius, uh, people talk about Shakespeare and one of the, the really silly things about Shakespeare is people argue about who Shakespeare was, whether, you know, uh, William Shakespeare, historical figure wrote all of the plays and other bits and pieces or whether, you know, he was stealing bits, which, you know, almost certainly he was stealing some bits, um, whether he was black or gay or a woman. And I subscribe to all those theories. I think he was black, gay, and a woman. Uh, I think he was multiple people. I think they were multiple people and getting my pronouns right because Shakespeare, and the reason why people love Shakespeare is they inhabit Shakespeare. Shakespeare is you. Uh, and that's what's the joy of Shakespeare is his work fits into different eras. You can gender bend it. You can do all kinds of stuff with it and, and it works. And that's great writing. So the whole concept of Shakespeare being a singular white dude who, you know, uh, lived 500 years ago and, and owned some farms and such. None of that's interesting. What's interesting is Shakespeare is the reader. So Joseph Conrad wrote Nostromo, but also Ford Maddox Ford wrote some of Nostromo. But there's this thing that says Joseph Conrad and it's part of an ouvoir. And, you know, these, these two writers collaborated on other things and there's a body of text, but really who cares? Because I'm going to come along and read Nostromo and then you're going to get my version of it anyway, or well, rather I'm going to get my version of it. So this obsession with the singular author, it's very, uh, uh Judeo-Christian, I think, <laughs> you know, we've got to have one God. Uh, I don't think it's actually helpful at all. I don't know what it has to do with writing or reading. 
I think it is absolutely a myth. That's my position. That is very interesting that you have it in the world of books, because in academia, you can have up to a hundred authors on a paper. It really is who you put in, I think it's 10% have to at least have affected the text at least 10% to get your name on an academic paper. But Harper helped Truman write his book or helped collaborate considerable amounts. And yet he is the only author on that cover. And Truman Capote was heavily involved in the drafting of To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. But, you know. So. And apparently that affected their relationship. Um, well, they grew up together. So they were always going to have uh, a close and difficult relationship, I would have thought. You know, across a lifetime, these things are never that straightforward. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, okay, so hypothetically, I've written most of my novel. And I'm tremendously stuck with a few bits and I say, you know, I'm workshopping it with you and I just can't get it. And, and you say, okay, but what about this? And then we sit and you write some and go, you know, how would you bounce off that? And I write a bit more and between the two of us, we come up with half a chapter and it fills that void that I couldn't fill on my own for whatever reason. I mean, you know, life. I would not feel the need to credit you on the front of the book for that. I would feel the need to credit you in the acknowledgements. And, and I think it's actually like, I would promote the concept of collaboration. So I would say who, who vastly helped me complete this chapter and wrote sections of it. Thank you very much. Um, but you know, and vice versa, like if I helped you write a chapter or two of your novel and, and even wrote five to 10% of it. I wouldn't expect to have my name on the front. Yeah. And I think you've touched on a sore point there. And I think it might be the hesitation of why writers don't go out to creative writing groups or find a creative writing buddy to help them with that. It's I've worked on this book and if I get involvement from a person, it's no longer going to be my own work. Yeah. I think you're hundred percent right. Mm. Uh, when, when I, uh, started teaching. Um, one of the things that, you know, I, I took into lessons was the compliment sandwich. You know, when you're giving feedback, that's good. Not so much that, but that's good. And actually, if you think about it, imagine having a sandwich, right? Where the bread's fine, but it's just full of what? Shit. Like it's a shit sandwich. Like literally the filling is always terrible. I've never understood that, uh, analogy. I think it's absolute shock. So I always went for the concept I would say to the workshoppers. Now imagine that one of your uh, fellow workshoppers has come with this draft and then they go home and the bus crashes and they're dead. And in their will, they said, you know, you fellow workshopper, I want you to finish this for me, get it published under my name. You wouldn't then go and, you know, Gordon Lish it and just completely rewrite it the way you think it should be. You would take what's in front of you, try to understand its physics, its reality. And on those terms, identify where it could be stronger, be more consistent with itself and attempt to build it up that way. And that's what workshopping should be. Every workshopper should take ownership of the writer's work and say, I wrote this basically. Now, how would I fix it if I was them? It's a complicated yeah. little bit of, uh, uh, multiple personality disorder where you have to kind of inhabit both at the same time. 
but yeah, that's, that's what I would say is the perfect way to approach workshopping. And it's miles away from this concept of a singular genius author who creates a universe on their own. That's perfect. Yeah. Um, so I suppose that makes me question, how do you find a collaborating group, a creative writing group, or how do you find a writing buddy? I think a lot of writing buddies have turned out to be, um, happy accidents like Truman Capote and Harper Lee were next door neighbors growing up. So that's, you know, pretty fortuitous. Um, yeah. we've talked previously about book clubs and I think within book clubs, you know, shared, uh, passion for certain types of writers will forge good uh, writing friendships as well, potentially. Um, and then obviously going into writing groups, but it's really hit and miss. And why is that? Well, because you've got a whole bunch of, of myths at play. Like one is the, you know, the singular creator, the, the God author that infects writing groups quite, quite badly. The other is the concept of talent, inherent talent, you know, the, uh, the writing gene that is a uh, problematic yeah. myth. Um, there are many, many writing teachers who get paid, you know, decent money to have a career teaching writing who don't believe that writing can be learned at all. Um, terrible frauds they are. So, so yeah, you've got, you've got all these myths and then people sometimes think that, um, constructive criticism is ripping the guts out of something and, you know, blowing it down. And if the writer can rise from the ashes, they must have something going for themselves. That's terrible feedback, but pumping up someone's, uh, confidence and saying, oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's terrible feedback, um, because it is dismissive. Uh, you know, you want to, you want to tell people, I take you seriously. We are peers. That's, that should be the starting point always. Um, and it yeah. should be for whoever facilitates the writing group. If they think they're the teacher, the authority, the expert, they're not going to do you any good that they, they, they simply don't understand their place in writing, which is a really fundamental thing. If they don't Yeah. Do you that, think there's a, do you think there's a hesitation taking feedback from peers? So people that you yes. think are on the same level as you, as opposed to it being the teacher or lower. I mean, you'll have people say, I don't have to listen to this person because I know I'm a better writer than they are, which, um, you know, is wrong because <laughs> they don't know that. Um, but also, you know, when, when you get out into the, I'm going to use air quotes again, the real world bunnies, um, uh, you know, people read your book and they go, that was crap. They throw it over their shoulder. You know, you, you don't get to go, oh, hang on a second now. I have a better education than you. I've read more. So I'm telling you now it's fantastic. You just go pick that up and put it <laughs> on the shelf. It doesn't work that way. So no, feedback's valid. Right? Mm. Um, but yeah, just the, you know, the hierarchy is, is a useless concept for writers. It's not helpful at all. If you want to have, um, people that you aspire to learn from, go read a book you like. There's your, there's your master there. Go sit at the foot of the book. Yeah. And I think that's the, the divide, isn't it? So you may think you're a better writer, but the person you're interacting with is a reader. They're reading your work. They're no longer operating that space as a writer. They're now reading what you've produced and they're not liking it. Maybe you should 
maybe they can't give you the feedback that they you need, but they're, they're giving you some form of feedback. It's like, I'm going to throw this book over my shoulder. It's not worth my time. Maybe you should listen to that. Well, yeah. And I mean, in a workshop group that, you know, lesser writer who, who may show up to the workshop group, you have this opportunity to find out from them why they don't like it. And the answer that they're just not smart enough or well-read enough to like it is not an answer. It's not an answer at all. Um, so you have to dig deeper and maybe they'll tell you very concisely and accurately what they don't like about it. And that will not mean anything to you. And that's fine. But you can take that criticism and go, that means nothing to me. Why not? What am I trying to preserve here? And have I preserved it? Or is that actually the problem? So feedback yeah. is always useful unless it is just didn't like it or loved it. Those, that kind of feedback's useless. So you have to get past all that with a group of people in the first mm -hmm. instance. And I think it's very dangerous to have that mentality in your head. Oh, you don't, you just don't get it. You just don't get what I'm trying to do. As soon as you, I think you use the word concrete. As soon as you concrete that into your brain, you are no longer open to have any um, feedback or criticism on your work. And as soon as you have that, you're not able to grow at all. You're literally locked yourself into a position. You've locked yourself into this piece of work and it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. And I mean, you know, like I've, I've been doing workshops for, oh God, oh my God, 20 years. Oh, that's horrifying. I've been doing <laughs> workshops for 20 years, folks, um, uh, right, like running them. And, um, I learn from you, Shannon, this is one of the many reasons why I thought, gosh, I really want to work with Shannon. Uh, cause after 20 years, I learned from you how to take feedback, which I'd never been able to quite work out. I've been instructing people on the, the vagaries of giving feedback, but how do you take feedback? And you just sit there, nod, smile and write notes and that's it. And it's, it's genius. It's absolute genius, folks. If you, if you want to know how to take feedback, Shannon's idea, uh, her name gets to be across that book. And, uh, yeah, it's absolutely perfect. That is what you do. So you don't, you, you know, you thank people, but you don't comment on what they're commenting on. Even if you mean to do that in a friendly way, because once you open that floodgate, uh, then you feel like you have to respond to everyone. And so when somebody says big pile of poo, you have to respond. And that's when you run into terrible trouble and things escalate and go wrong, etc. I think the only, uh, constructive response, someone getting feedback can give another person is, could you just explain that a little, a little more to me? Uh, like how you, where, where you saw the problem or where you think that could be better. And then you just sit and smile and take notes and say, thank you at the end. And that's, uh, yeah. so that's a massive thing. How to, how to take feedback, how to give it, which we'll talk about a lot more in a subsequent, um, podcast. So, so one of the reasons, cause we've been asked, uh, you know, how we became writing buddies. That was one huge thing for me was the way you took feedback It's much better than I've ever taken feedback. And I thought, well, I've got things to learn from this person. So now oh, I'm excited. This is news to me. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't like to uh, blow smoke up your leg, but seeing as we're like <laughs> out in the world now, I'll say this. Yeah. That was a, that was a major thing for me. 
um from my perspective and, and i'll ask you about yours in a minute the other thing was i could see your writing improving at, at a significant rate from piece to piece which meant you were taking on people's feedback and making adjustments and learning things and I don't think I have quite as much of a capacity for improvement anymore. Not because I'm like higher up the tree, just because I'm older and more concrete. Um, but I did find that uh, since we've been working together, like I've started changing the way I write, my focus when I write, and this has all come from feedback you've given me. So from my point of view, it's been a really big deal finding you as a writing buddy. And, and actually, folks, I should add that the whole reason this podcast happened is because we became writing buddies, had these conversations. And I think it was Shannon's partner, Luke, who said, why aren't you taping this? So here we are. But that's why you're my writing buddy, from my perspective. Thank you. Um, where do you go from that? Uh, I just want to comment. Spot, <laughs> well, I'll comment on the way that I take feedback. I think there's two points I want to make. It's so I have had experience getting feedback because uh, when I wrote my thesis, um, you would submit this thing that you put your blood, sweat, and tears into lack of sleep, you know, lack of time with uh, people, lots of coffee, and it would come back literally in red markers. And it was just, it was, you're tired. It's easy to get to be like, okay, I've got a bag. I'm going to go sleep now. I'm going to have a fun time. And then I'm going to come back to this with a fresh brain. And when you do that, it kind of removes that emotional sting. You're trying to remove the emotional aspect of it. So when I do write the feedback from you guys, I'll leave it probably for one night. And I think, I think Stephen King and a lot of writers say that once you've finished your novel, put it aside for six weeks and come back and read it again. I think that is that process happening, but in a lot more reduced space, it's not a novel that you're rereading. It's comments from other people also getting into a discussion with a group you as soon as you do as, as soon as you said as soon as you open those floodgates it's really easy to become defensive and i think that's really i mean no one's going to get blown up but i, I want to use the word dangerous because once again that emotional aspect is there um incredibly vulnerable experience to get feedback on something that you've produced so when you do wait, it kind of removes yourself from that text. There's a divide there that you can then work on this text and not work on, well, yeah, not feeling that people are attacking you as the writer. It is vulnerable, isn't it? It's a bit like walking out in the first week of summer in your brand new swimsuit going, okay, everyone, how do I look? And many of them are going, well, that's just awful. <laughs> yeah and you've you know you've got to just hold back your tears bite your lip and just let it sit with yeah. you for a bit and maybe a pair of board shorts is the way to go gareth i don't know but uh yeah i can't say i've ever had that experience well i wouldn't think many people would do that but you do do that in a writing group in a, in a sense um people say your writing isn't you but that's just crazy of course it's you um, it's a part of you that's aging and moving away from you the longer time goes by. But I, I wouldn't say that to people because I think they know better. You can just feel it on a, on an instinctive level when someone really doesn't like your work, they are in a way really not liking you. I think that's true. Mm. And I think it's better to, 
hang on to that and go, okay, so what do I do with that? Yeah. Do you have examples of giving feedback to people and that feeling of your attacking need going like way off, like building a mountain out of an ant nest? Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, you know, I think I've had a pretty good run. I try really hard to build culture with writing groups and, and respect and get, getting people's heads in the right frame so that they understand that we're all friends and all the criticism needs to be coming from a place of collaboration. <laughs> Got to collaborate <laughs> and uh, we're in this together kind of thing. I've, what, what typically happened I found when I, when I started teaching at uni is that people would get very inspired after a few weeks and they'd be like, I love workshopping. And folks, if you've never workshopped, if you have a good experience, it's, it's like riding the best roller coaster ever. And they'd be so pumped up, they would create their own writing group sort of off, out of the ashes of the class. And typically I'd get invited like as a guest speaker. Uh, that happened, God knows how many times, dozens of times. And I'd always do it, you know, because you want to be encouraging. And I, I just, I'm thrilled that people go off and start writing groups. So I'll whip over as the, uh, the aging Don and say a few words and sit in on one. And it's nice. All of them collapsed that I'm aware of, just all of them. And it was usually one rogue person who was just really not in the right headspace. And they, they would smash the entire group part. Uh, and so that's the danger. You need a heavily curated writing group. You need, you need to keep a, a pretty, you need to have a set of rules that are all built around respect and collaboration being constructive. And then you have to be like an absolute tyrant about people not breaking those rules. Uh, and then that creates the sort of safe points where people can plant their feet and know that whatever else is going on, however difficult it is, these things are absolute. And, and then you get really uh, constructive, productive and, and kind of joyous experiences. I think a lot of writing groups, when they're working well, people find them joyous, I would say. Yeah, I would agree. But then there's still this issue. So I'm going to throw it back at you. So you join a writing group. We're both part of a writing group. I love my writing group, but we're also writing buddies. Why did that happen? What's the difference? Well, it's a bit of a story. Mostly everyone in the world felt the effects of COVID and um, we got locked down quite a bit. And this was in a very tumultuous time in my life. And I was about to head to Indonesia to play badminton full time, but obviously COVID, I couldn't go and work is, I've never enjoyed working. So I needed an outlet for all that pent up energy that I'd used for training with badminton. I was like, okay, I'm going to concentrate on this writing thing. Cause it's something that I've been talking about for a very long time, but never fully committed. And I joined your, one of your, you were hosting a creative writing group. Yeah. Somebody else. And I, yeah, I joined up on that and I just found the way that you curated the workshops. It was really good. I'd go home, do the homework and I would get a lot out of it. And immediately I could see how, what you were doing was helping my work. Um, number one, being consistent and consistently showing up. I think that was the one thing that I did that if I may say you noticed, and I could already see how much my writing was improved. And from that, we developed a quite a good relationship. And then you uh, then created your own writing group and I joined that. 
And then from there, uh, again, consistently showing up. I know you, I said you shouldn't concentrate on this point, but you could kind of see what I was trying to do. And the amount of feedback that I got from you was the most helpful in terms for me to develop that work to where it is now. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful. And I think that's a joyous aspect as well. We both enjoy reading. We both enjoy writing. It's not a hobby. It's kind of something that we do and who we are. And I think that's incredibly rare to get. I think a lot of people get sparkles in their eyes. They think, oh, I'm writing this book. I'm going to get published. I'm going to be the next JK Rowling or whoever is next, uh, Stephanie Myers. But that doesn't interest me as much as developing a piece of work yeah. that changes myself and my potential readers. And I think that is something that we connect quite a bit on. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, I don't really get the idea of the author, to be honest. Uh, you know, the, the idea of doing readings and going on tour, doing those um, writing festivals. That seems to be very far away from what I enjoy spending my time doing, which is reading and writing. Uh, I know we were talking previously, Salman Rushdie said something along those lines. So, you know, I'm jumping on his bandwagon, but, um, you know, that it's, it's the other stuff's just not interesting. Just want to get onto the next bit of writing and the next kind of adventure in that regard. And, uh, I think you and I were talking about this and Elvis sent his Cadillac, his gold plated Cadillac out on tour. So he didn't have to go. Um, I think, yeah, I think if, if what interests you about writing is that being the Cadillac, then obviously you're going to find someone ends up driving you. It'll be your publisher, your editor, uh, you won't be in control of that process. And gosh knows it does. It doesn't sound that good. Does it really? No. I mean, sometimes it does. The sparkle does come in my eye and you healthily reel me back and be like, okay, Shannon. We're concentrating the writing here. What does it mean to you to be a successful writer? Because, I mean, it's almost my birthday soon. You start thinking about what society expects of you. You tell your friends and family you're writing a book and they're like, okay, cool. What are you writing? When is it done? Why, why are you still working on this? Haven't you been doing this for like two years now? And it, it gets to you sometimes and you're like, oh shit, like, what am I doing here? I have to produce something that society classifies as a success um so yeah i think it's also healthy to have that grounding aspect within a writing buddy which you provide yeah i've noticed that um and this would be difficult i think like people talk about oh i was writing a hundred words a day and i was so depressed and then i found this new system and now i finished my novel in 90 days and you can be as successful as me and i um i don't care how smart you are uh, and how in the moment you are when you're writing, I, I'm saying it folks, and I, I realize this is controversial. You can't write a good novel in 90 days. Prove to that idea. It's, uh, it's, it's, they're too big and there's too much going on, too much sort of emotional complexity. And it, you might write it at 70 words a day. And so what? Like, like it's a big deal. It's like winning a gold medal and, you know, like to win a gold medal, um, it can take multiple championships or Olympics or whatever. And then like a whole lifetime of training. Uh, I remember someone saying this, that yeah, getting published, getting your first novel out there is roughly equivalent to an Olympic gold medal, Olympic gold medal 
15, 20 years minimum to get there. You know, yeah. they start young. And <laughs> so the idea that you should have knocked off a book in two years from conception to being, you know, in a publisher's hot and sweaty hands, uh, it just doesn't seem at all plausible to me. Also, where's the fun in it? Like the, the, the joy of creating it, changing your mind, having someone read it and through their misreading of it, explain what the book is to you and you didn't realize what yeah. it was until that moment. And that might take you two years to get to, I mean. It becomes something that's very industrious once you start doing that. I mean, and that's what, what all the creative writing courses are online. We guarantee that you will have 60,000 words in six months. Just use our plotting system. Just plug in your scenes, use this software that will then put it into the, the, the perfect story arc. If you don't have the story arc, you, you haven't got a proper book. And yeah, where is the joy in that? You, you've now created something that you're doing in your spare time for most people mm. into a second job. Yeah. It's just. It's a shame. It's one of the biggest shames. You've turned a creative, creative endeavor into something that is not you anymore. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, you know, if I had a course that I was selling, which I don't, so uh, I'm not being cute. Um, you know, I, I would say, I guarantee that if you, if you really, um, commit yourself to this, you will want to write for at least two hours a day, every day. That would be an outcome. That would be an amazing outcome. That would be worth the money mm. to, to build a process where you felt comfortable and, um, validated sitting down for a couple of hours, minimum a day and going, this is what I do. I love it. So I don't care if it takes me 20 years to write this goddamn thing. I'm involved with it and it's in my head all the time. It makes me happy. Uh, so why rush it? Mm. Yeah. And then, yeah, if you're rushing it on the front end, this is also something that a lot of uh, authors say, so Salman Rushdie is one of them. When you do less work on the front end, you're doing way more work on the back end because, you know, you've written something. Now you've got to go back and edit this thing to make it what you want it to be. Um, so if you're doing this rush job, it maybe does take you 18 months to then edit it. You're not going to create a first good draft in however long they say they claim you can do it in. Yeah, I agree. And, 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 you know, um, if you don't do the work at the back end, then it goes to your editor. And if you really care about keeping, you know, a certain degree of, uh, control over your book, uh, you need to have done that back end work because your editor will do it for you. Cause that's what they're paid to do. And yeah. their interpretation will be another misreading. And really you want your own misreading to be on the shelf, not theirs. Uh, and, you know, you want to allow in, I mean, the, the stuff that we do together, helping each other with our writing, I feel that that falls under the province of a sort of a group ownership. Um, whereas with an editor, they're paid, they, they inhabit a position that is not you as it's a very clearly delineated thing. It's not a collaboration in the same sense at all. It's far less, uh, rewarding both parties certainly I've, I've done both and um they certainly i i didn't find them anywhere near as rewarding as collaborating with another writer but the other thing is that um part of it is the capote harper lee thing an extraordinary series of coincidences 
that, you know, fell together. Like if not for COVID, you'd be overseas right now, kicking people's ass in badminton and, and picking up, you know, big Nike endorsements. So. Oh, we would hope so. <laughs> I bet you're glad to be here. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and, and things just fall out this way. I know that when, um, uh, Philippe, the fellow who, who was running the writing group and asked me to take over for a year while he went traveling, I was not sure I wanted to do that. It sounded like a lot of work. Um, but because we're friends, I thought, oh, well, God, I'll just do it. And um, I didn't want it to fall over because that writing group that he runs has been running for years and it's it's very successful and been very much a tribute to the, all the work and emotional energies put into it. So I, I didn't want to kind of just go on oh, no, let, let it die. So, so that was, but I was right on the edge because I thought, do I really want to take on all this extra work for, you know? So there are a lot of coincidences too. Um, I guess what you said before, you got to turn up. Uh, if you turn up at things, you'll meet different people and yeah, you just get into a groove with certain people, I think. But I don't think, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, there isn't the one. <laughs> it's not that sort of romantic yeah. idea where there's the one out there. Um, but it takes a lot of things to go right to find one of the few. Mm. And so I would say uh, we're part of a few within the orbit of my creative sphere. Um, yeah. I could meet lots of writers I like. I don't think I could write with them the way I feel I can write with you. So that's very lucky. Yeah. And there's no real answer to that except turning up, I think, and meeting people and trying. Mm. And you're also quite... Um... You're, you're quite in love with this idea because within our creative writing group, you are trying to pair off other writers as well. Yeah. And what do you think the purpose of that is? The matchmaker. Um, well, well, there's a couple of reasons that the, the way I've been approaching it is based on, um, projects because everyone in our writing group has got a big project they're working on. That was kind of one of the ideas of the writing group. And so it's very feedback based our writing group. It's essentially a feedback workshop. Very little else goes on and we meet monthly and we meet, uh, via Google meet folks. So you, you don't, you know, if you're remote from other people or you just can't find the people in your neighborhood, you're not living next door to Harper Lee or whatever, you know, get online and, and meet collaborators that way. Cause Google meet I've been finding, which is the same as, um, zoom, it, it works really well. It, it feels like you're in a room with people. It, yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so, so it was all done based on projects really. Um, but also, uh, I was looking at the things that different writers were maybe finding more challenging and trying to pair them with the people who also found those things challenging, which may seem counterintuitive, but there are no experts in writing. And if, if you're able to really, uh, manage pace in your writing tremendously well, that doesn't mean that you can help anyone else do that. So it's actually more useful to be with someone who also struggles with pace and together trying to find solutions that work for both of you is a much, much better learning experience. So I've been pairing people off that way. And there's also the practical element, which is the, like we get together once a week. Um, and that's pretty much what all the other pairings have been doing. And that's doable because it's only two schedules to align. Whereas in a group dynamic, 
that's a lot of birthday parties and weddings and things you have to navigate around. So there's just a simple practical element of having one person you work with, you can commit to that weekly routine. But yeah, no, I'm a massive fan of it. I think, I think it's huge and I think it's, um, underrepresented as a, as an approach. Uh, and I disagree with WB Goodham. Um, I mean, it didn't work out for Joe Orton. I'll, I'll give him that, but I think in general, leaning into the concept that you don't write alone, that you are a mix of your influences and reactions to offhand comments that you'll get about your work. Even you might as well lean into that, take control of it, manage the parameters of it and work with a group of colleagues who respect you as a writer, you're going to get a much better outcome and a particular writing buddy, if you can crack it. 100%. I think there's so much value and this is a really an underrepresented resource for a writer, because if you are not giving your work for feedback to someone who's also a writer in a group, you will probably be giving it to your friends or your family members. And this is probably the biggest mistake people make. Um, last week we talked about how, um, Mark Danielewski gave his first book to his parents and his teacher. And because of that, he didn't want to produce another book or give his work to anyone else. Um, for my own experience, I worked on a short story, sent it to my mom and my sister, cause I was incredibly proud of it. And then I had to endure through a 20 minute phone call from my sister telling me how boring the story was and how my mom said she couldn't wait for it to be over because it was so boring. Yeah. Talking about the emotional aspect of feedback there, I was, um, I was ready to just go down to the pub and smash a beer down because I was like, this is the worst. You will not get that from a creative writing group. Not a well-run one, actually. If, if it's like that, you know, torpedo out. Um, yeah, you'll probably be in a pub. I, I suspect getting that kind of feedback if you're getting it from a writing group, but yeah, no families don't do good feedback. They really don't. Um, no, they either lie to you and say, um, yo, this is fantastic. You should keep going. And then when you've left the house, they're like, oh my God, or they're very upfront. Um, like my sister and my mom, but then also giving work to them they don't know how to give feedback the feedback was it was boring and your commas were in the wrong spots like that's not what am i going to do as a writer to develop with that feedback yeah and and whereas okay so let's say that was my feedback to you about the hypothetical story you showed me so it was boring and um your commas were in all the wrong spots so now that would be Clearly that is terrible feedback. And the reason why it's terrible is boring is, is an empty shape. You, you can't do anything with that. Like, like if you say it's boring because I've seen it before, it was too familiar. I knew where it was going. Now that's better feedback. It's still not great. In fact, I would cut the word boring out, right? It's just, <laughs> flick that over to the, to the family and say, I did feel the, that many times I felt like this, I knew where the story was going. And so if it was my story and we're writing this together, I'd be thinking, let's take that expectation. That would be one way of going rather than saying, make it more surprising. 
take those uh, familiar tropes and defamiliarize them. And for example, I would do this one. I, I could see myself doing that. What do you think? And, and that's helpful. Then you go away and go, okay, well, his idea was absolute rubbish. But I, as soon as I realized it was rubbish, I knew why it was rubbish and what was wrong with my story. Now I know what to do. Uh, yeah. Now the comma thing, that's, I mean, the problem is, you know, they're all semicolons. So we're just having a complete miscommunication here. Uh, and they just need to learn how to use a semicolon. And so, so basically, you know, you can take one bit of feedback, you can chuck another bit. And in a writing group, when it's given to you in a way that you can take it mm. uh, and use it, because that's part of it. Like, you know, you're not helping someone by trashing them. You're just not, you're just being a dick. And, and for the person giving feedback, you start thinking about it. Like if I just thought mm, it was boring, um, that's very lazy. It's lazy thinking. I don't even know why I find it boring. Why not? Like, like, wouldn't I want to avoid reading another boring book down the track? And if I could identify what I found boring about it, I start to know where I am. For example, yeah, good point. I find James Joyce or I find, no, that's not fair. I find James Joyce from Ulysses onwards really boring. And I know why, uh, it won't help him. Uh, and it's not even necessarily feedback, but I'm a very visual conceptualizer. I learn better from reading than I do from hearing lectures. I always used to snooze through the lectures at uni. Um, and James Joyce works on rhythms and sound in his writing. There's huge amounts of that. So of course that's not going to interest me, but then, you know, someone might say, well, you're not into to hardcore modernism, you know, and that would be wrong. I just want a kind of modernism that functions on a different level. And I can know and find that and go, Hmm, Virginia Woolf, hello there, come over here. I'm going to read your book. And so for a reader, it's empowering to understand what the hell you're talking about and why you react the way you react. And so yeah. that's the other advantage of workshopping. It makes you a better reader. You get more pleasure out of texts through collaborative reading, through reading together and making meaning together. How about that for a tie in? Yeah, one hundred percent. And um, you know, reading and writing are pretty much the same thing, in our opinion. So, if you are interested, you should check out our podcast. Why join a book club? Uh, where we talk about a whole bunch of really cool stuff as well. And um, I suppose wrapping up, what? How would you like to wrap up, Gareth, in terms of uh, feedback to our viewers and audience? Yeah. Well, I guess uh, I'm going to pop back to this article um, by W.B. Goodham. So let me just continue to read this. Joseph Heller uh, displayed gratitude when he publicly thanked his editor, Robert Gottlieb, for his work on Something Happened. However, Gottlieb advised Heller to be more discreet in future. Quote, nobody should know what I told Joe Heller and how grateful he is, if he is. It's unkind to the reader just out of place, end quote. Here Gottlieb has hit upon the reason for my enduring fascination with literary collaborations. As a reader, the romantic idea of the lone artist struggling away in his or her garret is an immensely appealing one. Obviously, no work of art is created in a vacuum. But what are the more noteworthy examples of literature owing its existence to a second author? 
And does it matter if credit is not given where it's due? Or is the aesthetic ideal of the singular vision more important than the occasionally ugly truth? I think um, that's, it's a very thought-provoking article, this one. I, I would highly recommend it to people. And like I said, we'll, we'll whack it in the show notes. I think Goodham hits on it right at the end there. It could be occasionally ugly. Uh, I think that might be right. Um, I'm sure Joe Horton, Joe Orton would, uh, would agree it can be occasionally ugly. Um, but there is enormous, uh, beauty in the kind of the reality of, cre of creative creativity, that the lone artist in their garret is a creation myth. And it's really just not in any way reflective of reality now or in the past. Uh, it, it just isn't. There are many great writers, I imagine, who wrote in garrets and we've never read their work. That would be closer to the truth. Um, yeah. So I think that when you, when you start to think about creativity as existing sort of as part of a sort of a wider organism, uh, and we're, we're, we're parts of that organism where we're sort of working together. We're an ecosystem of creativity. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful truth rather than an appealing myth. Uh, and, and so that's how I would, that's how I would cap this off. I would say that for all the, um, the romantic value of the myth, check out the reality. It's, it's much, much more beautiful. I think that's a beautiful way to wrap up Gareth. Thank you. That just came to me. Actually, we worked on yeah. it together, folks. Ha ha. <laughs> back in the post-production stage which you guys did not see right um yeah imagine us as those beautiful japanese vases that are threaded with gold after they've been cracked and broken and put back together again oh that's very nice okay well now we just need to wind up <laughs> that's perfect <laughs> um yeah so that was our random chat segment today folks um so we just finished our book review on House of Leaves last week by Mark Z. Danielewski. And I'm so excited because Gareth, you had chosen Murder in the Dark by Margaret Atwood, mm -hmm. which you can pick up a copy from your local library, your local bookstore, or uh, an online copy or through Book Depository or Amazon. And um, from that book, we're also going to be doing a couple of creative writing exercises because Atwood is just... Um, we were just ignoring the solo genius, but she is a genius in the creative writing process. And we're going to be doing some exercises from her book. And what else do we need to let everyone know what's new? Oh, um, send your feedback and just get in contact with us at admin at pleasurethetext.com. That is our email address. You can also just send us a comment through our website, thepleasurethetext.com. And we are on most social media platforms. Go over to YouTube, like, and subscribe if you want to know what uh, Shannon Gareth look like uh, and you can't get that sense from the podcast um so yeah i had a great time today gareth and i'm so keen for my second coffee once we jump off oh my god i agree with both those things yeah um and we're, we're gonna stick around but we're gonna turn the camera and the recording off because we're done for the day but we're gonna do our collaborating now aren't we gareth we are indeed the joys of working together and we'll see everyone next week Hopefully. goodbye everyone see ya. Bye.